Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. Well, it's the end of season three on The Crime Couch. This is a compilation of the 39 episodes during 2023. Every interview has been an extraordinary glimpse and insight into the lives of men and women in the job and several people outside the job. These interviews have made a real impact on us and on you, our listeners. I want to thank everyone who took a leap of faith and sat with me this year on the crime couch. It continues to be a real pleasure and privilege to listen and hear your stories. And a big special thank you must go to The Crime Couch's editor, Pete Dillon. We look forward to you joining us again on The Crime Couch next year. Carl Stella spent most of his 30 years in the job working in the crime squads. The former detective senior constable says despite retiring, you never stop being a cop. He recalled his days in the Homicide Squad Missing Persons Unit. Carl, when you're in those squads, were there any cases that stuck with you and, and, and why? Yeah, there was probably two cases that stood out to me. Um, one was uh, a guy by the or deceased by the name of Barry Waters. He was murdered by an offender by the name of Keith Lees, who ended up I ended up charging him and he ended up getting uh, convicted and got his 20 years. Funnily, well not funnily enough, but he's currently there's a warrant outstanding for him at the moment for a murder up in Queensland of a Victoria a young Victorian woman. So that's ongoing at the moment. But uh, the other one would have been. Oh, it stands out on its own, is um, an offender by the name of Peter Dupas, who's um, a serial killer and he's been convicted a number of times and never to be released. I remember working as a producer for Channel 7, Today Tonight, when the Halvargas murder occurred, which was horrific, and I was one of the first persons to go and interview the Halvargas family. Why did the Dupas case stick with you? I mean, it was a horrendous incident with Messina getting stabbed repeatedly in a cemetery. But what stuck with you, I remember watching the Havagas family grow grey with the tragedy and the chaos that that created in their lives, having their daughter, sister murdered in such a way. But what stuck with you? I actually, in relation to Dupas, uh, I didn't have any direct contact with the family. Other detectives on other teams were dealing directly with them. I certainly was involved in the Nicole Patterson murder and the subsequent investigation of that. And But seeing Nicole's family um, implode, I guess, after Nicole's murder, that you could see that unfolding uh, in front of you as the investigation continued on. But yeah, to lose such a, a beautiful soul 
no different to Messina at such a young age. It was, for them, you know, soul-destroying, really. And the way she was uh, murdered was, well, it was unheard of. Yeah, I had never, all the investigations that, that I conducted myself, there were no other MOs in relation to how she was murdered in Australia, let alone overseas. And those overseas inquiries in relation to numerous coroner's courts uh, throughout the Western world were conducted and there was no other ones specific to Dupass's MO were similar. What was unique about his MO? He removed the breasts of his victims and in relation to Nicole, to Nicole, we never located her body parts and also to another victim up on north of Melbourne, her, uh, one of her breasts were also removed. Was Dupass on the radar before he started committing these crimes, Carl? He was in, basically from the age of 14, he'd been in and out of institutions and jails. Numerous rapes, he'd done 10, 10 years for one, six for another, eight for another, 12 for another. He'd been in and out of jail and unfortunately every time he was released, within weeks he'd re-offend. And there's certainly other matters that are still outstanding that he's a suspect for to this day. Colleen Woolley was the first female RPA secretary, a founding committee member of the Past and Present Women Police Association, a Justice of the Peace, an author, and a former Victoria Police senior sergeant. Colleen, you represented police women in a number of organisations in your working career and in retirement. Why? Because I could. The need was there and I just stepped up. I don't think there was anything conscious about it. I guess a number of the younger police women had come to me from time to time with problems and I seemed to be able to solve them. So it just sort of evolved. One of the things that strikes me, though, after speaking to a number of former police women, is that there was a real sense of advocacy and there was a sense that you had to really push as a female police member and you had to stand up for yourself. Is that how you felt? Personally, actually, yes. Yes, I, th- I think so. It changed as time went on and police... There's a lovely quote from a mayor in Ottawa in Canada and she said, women have to work twice as hard, get three times the result to be considered half as good as men. She then added, fortunately, this was easy. And she was dead right. And actually, I put that in the second book. And because I'd used the facilities in at headquarters, the historic unit, to, to research some stuff, I had to show them the bits that I'd added. And a male superintendent said, that has to come out. She has to delete that. And he was asked why, and he said, because it made the men look stupid. And my reaction was, if the cap fits, it stays. And it did, and it's still in the second edition. And I also say, as another fellow author, choose the battles that you're going to engage in when you're writing a manuscript, because there's always that battle, isn't there? Oh, God, yes. Some of the stuff that I wrote, some men were quite thing about it, but you know, history is history and you've got to tell the truth. Otherwise, it's, well, not worth telling. Colleen, in 2017, as we've just been 
briefly discussing, you wrote Arresting Women, which celebrates 100 years of women in Victoria Police. I noticed you're in your second edition now. How difficult was that gear change from cop to an author? Actually, the first edition came out in 1997, and I wrote that then because there was no history of women police. When, when I first joined here in Victoria, I happened to go somewhere and they said, I'll go out and talk about being policemen. I said, oh, look, I'll, I'll talk about who our first one was, you know, give a bit of background. I said, who was your first woman? They said, no, oh, don't know. I said, well, when did policewomen join here? And they said, haven't got a clue. Who were you asking? Men. Policemen, and policemen who should have known because they were working in the historic unit. Former Victoria Police Detective Sergeant Graham Simfendorfer is a man of many parts. He's currently director of his own company, been a mayor of Wodonga, and the lead investigator in the reality TV program Hunted Australia. Graham recalls joining the Homicide Squad, a pivotal moment in his 27 years as a cop. Graeme, did you choose becoming a detective or do you think it chose you? Oh, that's a great question. I think it chose me because initially when I joined the police, I was like a lot of young blokes back then. I was 19 or so and a lot of young fellas through the academy. Everything was was towards the tactical side of things. So I want to join the SOG or the Special Operations Group, like a lot a lot of my mates did that went through the academy. That didn't work out. I had my first firstborn, Mia, who's now almost 22, so, yeah, I'm, I'm that old. When she was born, that was the last I trained for the Special Operations Group. And then it just, yeah, I think investigations found me. You joined uh, the Homicide Squad in 2005. That's a big day for a lot of people, ever getting anywhere near that. Can you describe that day and how you felt when you walked in? Yeah, uh, I was shitting myself, to be honest. I had I did done my selection over the phone with Charlie Bazina. He rang me out of the blue when I was working at Glen Waverley and pretty much interview over the phone and on the spot. It was great. So I was shitting myself alone just talking to Charlie. But Was that normal that you get an interview over the phone? Isn't it normally a panel? Uh, back then, no. I don't, I don't think so, no. Back then, yeah, you, you're almost pretty much tapped on the shoulder or you know you, you applied and, and they would do their their due diligence around who you were and what made you tick and, and that was pretty much an interview about your personality and your skill sets and a few questions so and how you think on the feet because I wasn't expecting the call it wasn't a we're going to have a phone call at one o'clock it was just bang here's Charlie Bazina why do you want to join the homicide squad and bang away we went so obviously did something right uh, went in on temps for there as a trial and yeah, my first day, my crew that I was on, crew three, I was on a day off. So I was there on my own trying to, you know, and, and just everything was just humming. Like there was no, there was no introduction. It was pretty much meet the receptionist. There's the coffee. That's where you're going to sit, sort yourself out for the day and you'll meet your crew the next day. And took a car home for the night that night, which I thought was pretty cool. Thinking, oh, it's all right. I'm on call here at Homicide. How good's this? And then, yeah, and then as, as it works out, we got a call out that next morning to my first murder. And away it went. They always say, Graham, you never forget your first murder. Is that right? Yeah, that one in particular, that was in Ascot Vale. We got called out to two gentlemen living together with some uh, mental health issues, unfortunately, and one took the other's life. Pretty, pretty violent, pretty messy scene. And even, even I asked the sergeant at the time, I said, this, is, this can't be, 
this isn't normal, is it? And he's like, no, nah, this one's a bit bit different. So, yeah, baptism of fire. And again, rocking up to the scene first and the regional detectives were there and, and they were waiting for homicide to turn up. But that's day one for me. So I was just really nervous and just trying to do the best I can. But it didn't take long to settle in to the, to the crew mentality and, and the professionalism that surrounds the homicide squad to just fall in step with that and, and just learn so much for that whole time I was there. It's interesting, isn't it? Because every member that I speak to has always, like often says, that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to be in the homicide squad. Deserved reputation, you think? Yeah, my experience, most definitely. And, and again, probably beyond. I just I soaked it all up and I just would go and call for any crew that I could just to get the experience and learn how other senior sergeants did their business. And we, we're obviously talking at the time of those that know Victoria, the, the, you know, the real big names of Victorian homicide. So I just went on call with each of those crews and just saw how they all worked and how the sergeants worked and senior sergeants worked and just soaked it all up. But yeah, definitely, definitely the reputation, that's for sure. And it, and it stuck with me for the rest of my career. That was the, that was the benchmark. And I think also what a lot of members talk about is the professionalism of the briefs and the attention to detail and how that had to go up a next level in comparison to working as a regional or, or a metropolitan D. Yeah, exactly. No stone unturned. Uh, chase every rabbit down every hole. And it, if it did go off on that different tangent, you just had to chase it until you could put that to bed. And like we know, it's not, not just who you, you're proving did it, it, who didn't do it. So knocking everyone out of that investigation as well. So... The meticulous nature of what the homicide work was, I just thrived on, loved it, yeah, and that put me in good stead to run my own team later later in divisional work. And we know the, the regional work is unfortunately a lot more volume and a lot more pressure and everything has to be yesterday. So you've really got to navigate that pretty carefully because you, you haven't got the time to chase everything down every burrow uh, in that regional work. But uh, working as, as a team is, is always, um, I've found the best way to achieve your goal. Alex Presney joined me on the crime couch before starting his incredible run from Mildura to Melbourne, a run the Victoria Police's senior constable completed in honour of his brother, Joshua Presney. Joshua was one of four members tragically killed in the Eastern Freeway crash on the 22nd of April, 2020. Alex, I know from recently losing my precious father that grief is unpredictable and can be very overwhelming and you have to sit with it. So how have you sat with it and how have you learnt to live your life without your brother? Yeah, grief, grief is a, it's a, it's a, it's a very specific word and some, it sometimes seems like a very scary word that people are... Um, they have within themselves about whether it's losing somebody they've known for months, weeks, decades. It's sitting with grief is, it's very scary. It's very uncomfortable. It's very, um, but you never, you, you never realize that you, you're in it. It's just how you, how things are just going in your mind and in your body it's just and what you're left with and so what do you do what do you do with it what do you how do you manipulate this grief and sort of unpack it um it's you don't want to be there to be some sort of formula or method to dealing with it but it's kind of just something that you've got to got to face 
because there's no alternative if 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 it's what happens to you and i there was a lot of i would say a lot of my treatment was to do with grief because regardless of whether it occurred on duty or not you know and my brother being a police officer he was my brother he wasn't josh the police officer he was josh my brother so that was the massive thing and the realization that i kind of always knew that that's what it was it was losing him full stop not on duty not in the circumstances not in the same sort of circumstances that i worked in because i didn't find that to be helpful to try and identify and relate that to it it was simply just being without what i'd been with for 30 years and in in a brother so well he's more than a police member he's your brother he's a member of your family and a crucial one and you know I think one of the things you also learn is how to deal with the absence of the person and that's one of the things I've learned with my father um that never leaves you that's right you really you the biggest struggle is learning to be without that person who or people you just never thought would leave and that's everybody that's not somebody who you know you expect is even even if you know you, you might know that it it could be coming or it could be sudden even if you've known about it that it could happen in an instant when when it happens it is a whole new world it is it is completely different to what you ever expected what sustained you alex you you, you know you've published and express yourself in song I know you you know you play guitar as well what sustained you like I know I don't want it to be a pat summing up of bullet points but what what has given you solace and what's given you hope I would say finding solace in the things that just just came to me emotionally mentally physically um and luckily, there's been so many people who, when I would express what keeps me close with Josh and what gives me warmth about it, is that there's been so many people who have been so supportive that, and that, and people have just said, and I've said, yeah, it might sound ridiculous, it might sound silly, but until you identify, and not everybody does, not everybody does identify with certain things like, I don't know, whether it's how they how they can relate and how they can get closer to the person that they've lost but when i did it was very comforting it was painful at the same time because it was like why am i thinking about this i don't i shouldn't have to be thinking about this i shouldn't have to be in this space where i'm i wouldn't say oh i looked for things 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 came to me where they never have before whether that was just a phenomenon whether that was just it actually was Josh, and I firmly believe that it was him coming to me, being connected to me, because I know deep down in my heart, and we all know that he never wanted to go. And I always picture it is that he is behind this glass wall. He's just within arm's reach because he never he never should have gone. He never wanted to, but he and he's trying his absolute hardest to get back. And he would give all of us 
some form of energy to feel comfortable and to feel warmth in. It's a different side of the person that, that you never would have seen before. So it makes you question, is this true? But at the same time, they're in a different part of their lives or of their spirit or whatever they are. So it could be. Josh was the jokester, wasn't the, the most sort of emotionally outward person. So you kind of go, geez, is he... Do you think that he's actually doing this or he, or is he just doing his own thing like he used to? But I would say, no, well, he's in this new realm now. And he is he is giving us this hope and warmth because that's all he's... I would say that's what he would be loved to be doing at the moment, wherever he, wherever he is. Former Victoria Police Detective Sergeant Brian the Skull Murphy was one of several retired members who unfortunately passed away during 2023. I was lucky enough to interview Murph for my first book, the biography of Billy the Texan Longley. I asked Murph about his relationship with the Texan. How would you describe your rapport with him now? Or your rapport with him in those days? I gave evidence for him when he got charged with receiving. I was approached by a solicitor, I forget who the solicitor was now, if I give evidence on the on his behalf in relation to his standing in this area as far as I was concerned. And um, I was subpoenaed, I was told not to go. I said, well, who's going to, going to pay my fine if I don't turn up? And they said, well, get up there and don't do anything to help him. But I went up there and I told them what I knew. And the judge thanked me. He said, um, your evidence has uh, been very fair. He said, no, I appreciate what you've told me. He said, but uh, I can't take it into consideration because this man has received money from most probably one of the biggest um, robberies this country has ever seen. He said, and he's got to be treated with, uh, dealt with accordingly. Thank you very much for coming and I must uh, commend you on the way you gave your evidence. That money what came from the Maricol Railway Yards in Sydney, I think. I think it was £125,000 or dollars, whichever the case. And um, I just uh, told him what I knew about him, I, uh, how he'd been in, in hotels and uh, I'd been in there and the fact that I was the policeman and he, he didn't want any trouble where he drank and most probably saved me from getting kicking on numerous occasions. Really? Yeah. And, and that's all I said. How was it viewed by the Victoria Police? Well, see, a lot of the bosses were country boys, and they'd never had, they'd never grew up with villains in the country towns. There were the villains of the, of the country town might be the local uh, rapist, or who would uh, these days would be a joke, and, and most probably in those days, remember the local football team, or or somebody that was the town drunk, somebody who wanted to fight every time he got drunk. They, they were the villains that they were used to. But we grew up seeing all these blokes grow up, and um, luckily we had the parents we did, and they said, we catch you. My father was a probation officer, and he used to say, if I catch you with any of those boys, so-and-so, 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 I'll give you the best tanning you've ever had. And so you were warned up, and you are told why, before you got yourself mixed up with them. And I knew them, and there was nothing for me to say good day to them because a lot of them I'd gone to school with. 
both at South Melbourne and at West Melbourne. What were the qualities that appealed to you? Billy is a pretty deep thinker. Very wily. If anything, in those days, it was a game. He never asked me to do anything. I never asked him what he did. I was suspended in 1971. There's a lot of allegations that they're going to kill the kids and they're going to kill me and blow the house up and everything. So I rang Billy. At the painters and doctors' rooms, I rang him. And I said, listen, I said, do you know who it is? He said, I've got a fair idea. I said, he said, do you want me to come down and meet you? I said, no. I said, all I want of you is a guarantee that my wife, the kids and the house are left alone. He said, oh, he said, uh, I'll see what I can do. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Anyhow, did we have the phone on there, Mum? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So, anyhow, he rang me and uh, he said, I can guarantee you, and, and guns were drawn over that. Uh, fact that I wanted a certain amount of protection from the painters and doctors. It was supposed to be a painter and doctor that I killed. So anyway, um, he rings me uh, about an hour later. He said, sorry to keep you waiting, Chief. Uh, he said, um, I can guarantee your wife, your kids and your, ca- uh, your house, but I can't guarantee you or your car. I said, good, thank you very much. He said, it's a pleasure. Megan Norris was a fascinating interview on The Crime Couch. The former court reporter, investigative journalist and true crime author of eight books reflected about her career and what drives her. Megan, you've spent a long time of your life, more than 40 years, writing about grieving parents whose children have been taken away due to some very horrific circumstances. What motivates you to write about these things which are are pretty grim? So that people will understand. I think it's more about, for me, generating a real awareness of the agony and the suffering that this causes and whether sentences are adequate. You know, it's sort of, was that sent? did that sentence really fit the crime or didn't it? You know, it's questioning the system. It's also giving people an insight into stories that aren't heard in court. So they are now. When I first came here, victim impact statements were not the norm. And that slowly changed because of people like Noel McNamara with Victims of Crime in Melbourne and Jodie Datson's mum, Cherie. They campaigned for that so that the judge would take into account the suffering in, in sentencing and reaching an appropriate sentence. And that, to me, was really important. So it was those stories that were only being heard in court in a short victim impact statement that I wanted to explore more so that people really understood what violent crime means in people's lives. You've had your own very tragic personal circumstances as a young mum nursing a teenager through cancer. I understand your child is now okay, thank goodness. But is that why you understand so clearly the parents in your book, what they're actually going through? Yes, I remember when my oldest son had cancer, he was 14 when he was diagnosed with uh, acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. And we spent all our time on the oncology ward. And in those days, 97, there was no cure for leukaemia. It's still an unpredictable illness. But it was very unpredictable then. Sometimes they made it, mostly they didn't in 97. They were perfecting a protocol of treatment that's now international. And 
you know, it's most people survived now, but then they didn't. And I remember thinking, feeling very hard done by, and very like, why me? I did the why me. And I remember sitting on the ward about four in the morning at Monash, watching the sun coming up, thinking, you know, why me? And then I thought about all the parents whose stories I told, who they kiss their children goodbye, they go to school and don't come home, or they go out for the afternoon to a playground and don't come home. And I thought, you know what, if everything doesn't work out for us, I've had this time in hospital, these this two years, I've had this time to love him and be there right up to the last minute and to say goodbye and be there and hold his hand and he's surrounded by love. Those parents don't get that. They never got the chance to say goodbye. A lot of them beat themselves up forever. Val Smith spent more than 40 years in Victoria Police and in the military. The former detective sergeant reminisced about his time in the dealers and his work with Crime Stoppers. From 1986 to 2012, you were the detective senior sergeant in charge of Crime Stoppers, which I think was where I met you when I was working for Channel 7 Today Tonight. How was Crime Stoppers created and how did you get involved, Val? It was actually 95 I went to Crime Stoppers, 95 to 2012, I think it was, you're right. I wanted to go back to the CIB and that position came up and it was the first one I applied for and I was successful in getting it. And Crime Stoppers was an interesting thing because it was established in the US and it was basically looking at crime and using the unsolved crime and using the media to help promote that crime to, for the purpose of, sol- of solving it. And the, the management behind the whole Crime Stoppers uh, enterprise was a mixture of police and private sector and commercial sector and media. So you had that cross-the-board expertise to, to do it, which was really interesting. So you look at it like crime is a product and you're trying to market it in for the purpose of not selling it, but to solve it. So it's no different to anything else. And the, the media become your, your, your marketing people, your PR people that are getting out there and pushing that crime out to the community in order to get the information back in to help solve it. Very highly successful. One of the things I find really interesting about your background, Val, is that working in the dealer squad, like I know my father worked with the secondhand dealers with the infamous Reg Henderson, the detective with the photographic memory. Did you ever work with Reg? No, I didn't. That was before my time. And yeah, he's, he was a legend, absolute legend. What cases have really stuck with you from a point of view of having an extensive detective background? What cases have stuck with you, Val, and why? That's a very good question. And probably off the cuff, I think probably the ones where in the missing persons area where children are involved or young adults, there's a, a great sadness behind a lot of those cases it seems such a waste of life when there's a death attached to it. They're the ones that stick with me across the board. Were there any matters, I suppose, when you were working in the CIB and and the dealer squad, any matters or cases that stuck with you there? I think the biggest case that we ever worked on in the in the dealer squad was the it was a case of armed aggra- aggravated burglary or armed robbery, basically, 
on the founder of the All Night Chemists in, uh, in Australia, who was uh, quite wealthy, and he was held up at, at night, and his house was virtually cleaned out. Now, that was an interesting case because when the first detectives arrived, they were concerned with the amount of cash and jewellery that was stolen. And then the boss of the, uh, the major crime squads at that time called us in to have a look at the property because it involved some paintings and, and certainly a lot of exquisite jewellery. But what we noticed straight away was uh, that there was a large opal collection, huge opal collection. And the opal collection was, was multi, multi-million dollars worth of stuff that was stolen. That was an incredible case, and the offenders in that particular case sorted through a lot of that property after they left the crime, and they threw a lot of the semi-precious stones into the Yarra River. And there were people and young people and, and police officers uh, picking rubies and sapphires, and most of it was you know, imitation uh, or semi-precious stones out of the river for some time. Uh, a lot of that property was not recovered, some of it was, and the, the offenders were captured and um, went to prison. What an extraordinary story. And I suppose it's possible that some of those semi-precious jewels are still there lying, I suppose, now with the e-bikes. Yeah, that's right. Or perhaps they washed, found themselves washed out into the middle of Port Phillip Bay, perhaps, you know. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Catch. Mm-hmm.